What is the secret to capital growth? Can data give us the answer? And if so, what data? New properties have been uh, shown to underperform older properties, and it's because of the depreciation. I mean, it's amazing that, that in the industry, there can be a term called depreciation benefits. There's nothing beneficial about depreciation. What we're after is appreciation, the complete opposite of depreciation. So I think that investors get really mucked up. They, they read the glossy brochures from developers. They should definitely steer clear of new. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're exploring big data to see if we can uncover trends and patterns that will help us pinpoint exactly where to buy in order to increase the probability of investment success. I must say, this sounds like the holy grail. We're joined by Jeremy Shepard, the Head of Research at Select Residential Property. And before joining SRP, Jeremy created a suburb scoring algorithm called DSR, which is demand to supply ratio. As we all know, demand and supply really is fundamentally what drives the property market. More recently, he's been working working on decision-making tools such as location score, suburb growth, and buy and hold. Jeremy is also a property investor and one of his claims to fame is that seven properties in his portfolio were bought sight unseen based purely on data. Now, I must admit to being a little sceptical about how good these properties are, so stay tuned as we will ask you more about that through our discussion. Thank you for joining us today, Jeremy. We're really looking forward to hearing about the underlying secrets of capital growth. Well, thanks very much, guys, for having me on your show. Awesome, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on. I guess capital growth is is probably one of the hardest things and the most important things to sort of pick longer term. How do you sort of think about it in terms of you think about it long term? Do you think about it short term? What's your sort of goal when you're thinking about property investing? Uh, Well, for me personally, I do think about it over the short term. I think one of the, the great forgiving things about property investment over the long term is it's it's great you it's very hard to make long term mistakes in property it's time is a is a great leveler the more distant your mistakes are the the less relevant they are but my focus is definitely a over the short term. And that's because I have access to some relevant data that helps me make uh, good investing decisions. When I was first starting out, it was drummed into me by uh, all the books and, and mentors and experts of the day that you buy and never sell. And uh, I think that's, that's a great fallback if you, if you fail to target a market that is going to have excellent capital growth, just stay the course and sooner or later you'll, you'll go through a, a boom. But nowadays with more advances, more data in this information age, uh, I believe it's getting a lot easier for investors to actually trade property. If they know what they're doing, you can get better gains from from trading property. You can recognise this has been a great boom that I've had. It's now levelling off, possibly correcting. I want to exit the market and find the next market. And I think that's something we'll see 
uh, more prevalent amongst investors into the future, but, but right now it's sort of pioneering days. There's massive costs involved in getting in and out of property though. I guess are you sort of anticipating that a uh, broad-based land tax is going to make this activity more appealing and more, more actually lucrative? Well, when I saw this announcement by the New South Wales State Government that, that they were going to change uh, how they address stamp duty, my eyes lit up. I thought, oh, that's great. That's going to make trading easier. But, but even in the case where stamp duty is, is uh, preserved in its current uh, form, there's still the, the opportunity. It really comes down to looking at the numbers. Um, you've got to assess how much am I going to lose by selling this property? I've got to pay capital gains tax. I've got to pay an agent their commission, there's legal fees. And then when I reinvest those funds, I've got to pay stamp duty, there's more legal fees. Can I actually recoup those? Is the opportunity that I'm missing out on really bigger than the cost of those um, transactions? And that's where estimating the capital growth forecast of the current properties, Joan, versus the alternative you're planning on replacing it with, uh, that's where it comes in really important. And it's so difficult for investors to estimate that, that it makes perfect sense to just sit tight and, and hold for the long term. But um, the technology to, to forecast capital growth, uh, at least over the short term, is improving. And uh, we are at a stage, I believe right now, where we can do those sort of sort of estimations. I mean, a great example was uh, Sydney's boom, which sort of ended around uh, the end of 2016, started 2017. It started in in 2012, so you had about a five-year massive capital growth gain there. But the ideal move for investors at uh, the start of 2017 would have been to sell up out of Sydney and move those funds into Hobart and you would have been much better off now. And the data was certainly indicating that Hobart would have that sort of double-digit growth. It was also indicating around the same time in early 2017 that Sydney was going flat. Uh, But it would have been, I admit, a a brave investor who would have sold out of Sydney, paid a huge amount of capital gains tax and and moved their money to to Hobart. And I think it's probably a case of uh, investors... Uh, seeing this sort of technology over the years to come and gaining confidence with it. But but we are moving towards this in, in the data age. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But <laughs> I mean, because the thing is that those buyers that held, those owners that held tight, and if they're selling now, uh, they I think the numbers would show that they'd be better off holding because the growth here is better than in Hobart right the minute and they wouldn't have incurred all those costs. And I think too it, the fact that you then have to pay capital gains tax and so then you're reinvesting less money as opposed to having all that money, that tax liability effect, effectively leveraged, you know. So yeah. there's, there's those additional costs as well. Yeah, I mean it, it all comes down to, to coming up with actual figures for those costs rather than just thinking, well, I've got to pay capital gains tax so so let's let's just not do it. Mm. What is the capital gains tax? What is the stamp duty? And it's I've, I've put together those calculations, and there are definitely circumstances uh, around the country where investors uh, would have been uh, much better off selling. So I I got involved in property investing uh, with the ardent belief that I should buy and, and never sell, and it's only because I've seen since then that there have been definitely times where 
I would have been better off if I had sold. And I've calculated the numbers. And uh, I mean, Perth's another example. Uh, towards the end of 2015, demand withdrew from that market because of the downturn in the resources sector. And it, it didn't really matter where you owned property in Perth. You would have been better off shifting your money elsewhere unless you had, let's say, you'd owned property for, say, 20 years. And then we're talking about a massive capital gain and mm-hmm. your capital gains tax would, would be significant enough to, to knock that concept in the head. And that's why it's a case of each individual circumstance, you've got to calculate what is the capital gains tax that I'm going to be spending. I've owned the property for more than 12 months, therefore I get a 50% CGT discount straight away. My marginal tax rate is blah, therefore I'm going to spend this much in capital gains. So it is never as much as a quarter of the capital gain that you've got because there isn't a marginal tax rate above 45%. Uh, so it, it's a case of doing the numbers rather than just having uh, a broad sort of opinion about a strategy. Uh, this will never work. There are circumstances where it, it definitely does work. Is it different to hotspotting? Oh, I think it's it's exactly hotspotting, and uh, and I think that that technology is improving. In the past, we've we've been burnt. I've been burnt myself by by picking a hotspot and and had prices go the other way. And you look back twenty, thirty years, and the amount of data that was available back then is is insignificant to to here here we are in the the data age. I mean, yields don't go back prior to the the turn of the century, so you've got no idea on things like auction clearance rates, vacancy rates, yields, percentage stock on market, even bedroom counts and things like that. We are privy to an enormous amount of data now, which simply wasn't available decades ago. And that is revolutionising investment and suburb selection. So what are the things that, and I'm I'm guessing you're using AI to sort of find out really what the drivers are. Is that fair to say, or you actually, yeah. yeah. So, so what is, I guess, what are the surprising things that, that are throwing up, that's throwing up for you? Uh, one that surprised me was uh, wages and wage growth. There's been a belief that if you target suburbs with high wage earners, that you will outperform the benchmark of, say, the national national average growth rate. And actually, historical data looking at household income data from censuses conducted over the last couple of decades show that there isn't that relationship, that low income earners can actually be in suburbs that outperform high income earners. And if this is the only data that you've got to make a decision about wages and wage growth, historically it has shown that it's it's a misleading indicator. It won't actually help investors. And but with that point though, I mean if you had a choice of two suburbs, one with low wage growth and people in that suburb were not getting pay rises and people who were buying properties were on average or lower incomes versus a suburb where you've got people moving to the suburb on higher incomes and are borrowing, being able to borrow more money, like longer term fundamentally, the demand is different because their capacity is different. So, well, that, that's what you'd think, but but the data suggests that that wouldn't have helped you in the past. And I think the reason behind that is because the people that are actually living in the suburb aren't necessarily the people that you want to know their, their wages. So who is actually buying a property can be from outside the suburb and it's their wages that are more important and we just simply don't know 
what their wages are. All we know is the wages on census night for this particular suburb was X, Y, Z. Okay, so I just need to cut in here. I just in the news this week, this is interesting because there's a correlation here for me, there's a federal government funding change to private schools and private school funding has been previously tied to the incomes of the location, like census data, the incomes of the location where the school is located and now they're arguing that they're actually going to base it on the incomes of the parents of the students that go to the school, which probably don't or may not live anywhere near the school. (laughs) So it's effectively what you're saying is the same thing, that if there's an area where there's a lot of absentee owners, a lot of investors, then that is actually something that's money attracted to an area by investors rather than the intrinsic desire of people with higher incomes to live there. So they're two very different drivers, aren't they? Yeah. And and the other thing is that I mean, I'm speculating on the cause. All I can do is look at the correlation in the data. Mm. But what I'm thinking is there's some other driver of demand which attracts a suburb to buyers. And if the prices have gone up significantly, then the only buyers, and I'm talking about owner-occupiers here, that can afford to buy have the wages required to buy there. And then they move into the suburb and that indicates wage growth. That comes up as the wage growth, but it's not people getting a pay rise. No. You don't come home from work, honey, I got a pay rise, ring up CoreLogic and say, hey, my property should be worth more now simply because I got a pay rise. There's something else in the suburb that is appealing to buyers that's driving demand. Prices are pushed up and from then on, the only people that can afford to buy obviously have higher wages. So it could be that price growth is pulling up wages, not wages pushing up price growth. Well, it's the people at the auction who are desirability and the tractability of that suburb to those, say, that market. And I guess that market, you would ideally want it to have high income. So you wouldn't really want it to take one income. You want it to be double income. You'd want it to be double high income. And so if a suburb attracts a high income, double income family, even if, say, we're only 5% of the properties are selling each year, but that 5% is selling to that market, it doesn't really matter what the other 95% of people in that suburb are earning because those properties aren't for sale. That's right. Yeah. It's just if, if there's only five properties for sale and there's 10 high-income young families wanting them, then arguably that suburb is going to get more high-income young families because that's who's buying these properties. I think yeah. And- maybe the suburb isn't getting wage growth, but ultimately it is on a portion. Those five that are selling are selling to people that are earning more than the current suburb incomes. Yeah, and where where do those buyers live or where did they live on census night when the data was recorded? They might not have been living in that suburb. It might have been an adjacent one or it might have been on the other side of the city. Uh, we just don't know. But that that would be po- probably a lead indicator is what, what are the wages of the people that turn up at, at the auction? <laughs> but nobody's measuring that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, ask around. <laughs> yeah. But, the, I mean, the thing, what you're talking about effectively is gentrification. That So in, gentrif- in examples of gentrification, rising wages are a lag indicator, right? And then they become a lead indicator. Well, I mean, if you're an investor and you're picking a suburb, you're going to have a look at this sort of data if you believe that this information is, is of use. So the only way you can get this, this information of the income of occupants or residents of a suburb is from this census data. And it's only published once every five years. And all I did was 
analyzed this historically going back to censuses from 1991, 96, etc., and to see if there is a correlation. Have they had outperforming capital growth if they had uh, above average wages. And the data says, well, no. So if this is the only data we have available, then then that's what we've got to use. And, and we've seen that it doesn't work. Interesting. You can also argue that uh, some areas have higher percentages of self-employed, which potentially on paper can have lower wage growth. They yeah. have assets in business owners and other trusts and, and things like that. Yeah, what are you going to put on the census? Maybe you don't want the ATO to know what your real, yeah. real income is. <laughs> I mean, what are some of the other things that you think that a lot of property investors focus on that may not be a good idea? Well, one of the the real obvious ones is population growth. And, and this is relevant at the macro level. So by macro, I mean Australia-wide or even a major state capital like Sydney, Melbourne. When we have international migrants, obviously not having many at the moment, they don't bring with them a house or any land, so they require somewhere to live. And that places pressure on uh, housing accommodation. So there is an increase in demand at the macro level. But at the micro level, like a suburb or local government area or postcode, uh, people don't move into the suburb and, and wander the streets looking for a place to live. They don't live in a cardboard box under the freeway bridge. They move into an already vacant dwelling. So there's an oversupply if there's a vacant dwelling. Uh, so all that demand is doing is it's matching supply when they move into that property. And population growth at the at this micro level of a suburb is is not a lead indicator of demand. It's actually more likely an indicator of supply. And the, the best example of that is um, these population growth forecasts. You probably heard uh, someone saying, oh, this the population is, is due to grow by 10,000 more people over the next uh, five years or whatever. Mm. And this is a, I'll call it a, a growth corridor. But yes. the way in which you come up with those forecasts is council and, and uh, developers, uh, they have plans for development yeah. of new properties. It's, it's really a case of if we put two and a half people in each one of these extra properties that we're planning on approving and building, then the population will grow by X amount. So it's the forecast is purely based on supply and supply is the enemy of capital growth. So yeah. investors want to avoid those sort of what they call growth corridors. They're really supply cor- corridors. That's hilarious. That is, it's a nicely explained. We've, we've discussed yeah. this on the show before that, um, you know, if an agent or a developer saying high growth area, then <laughs> run like the, yeah, run like the that's clappers. Right. Yeah, avoid those areas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting point because if it has to have high population growth, it has to have high supply growth because mm. otherwise the people are going to be, you know, unless they're moving in with other people, there's nowhere for them to live. And so to get high population growth, you need high supply growth and like you said Jeremy that's the issue of any type of property investment is high supply growth is high risk mm. if there's no cap on supply then how is there a, a shortage and how are you going to get price growth so is that sort of what your research shows is that high population growth leads to high supply growth which then leads to low capital growth uh, yeah it does but the the research I just need to point out is is a little difficult to do with these sort of um, yeah. greenfield estates because <laughs> Uh, you know, picture a, a fringe suburb where there's some houses on really large blocks and you might sell off some of those to developers. Mm-hmm. They divvy them up into extremely small blocks and then sell them. So you might have a, an old house selling for 
400,000. And then in come these new, brand new double brick on tiny blocks selling for 500,000 because they're new. It looks like the median has grown by 25% from 400,000 to 500,000. But the old properties are still selling for 400,000. The new properties yep. are still selling for 500,000. There's been no capital growth at all. It's just an anomaly in the median. And it's very difficult to uh, calculate the capital growth for these high population areas based on medians. You need to look at repeat sales and that means you've got to wait until one of those new properties sells again and so it becomes very difficult to get an accurate read on them. It's so true and yet yet the developers are saying high capital growth, 25% median, median yeah, house price growth and you right. go, oh my God, <laughs> so sad. Yeah. It's not a lie but it's not the truth either. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's the, it's been it's median growth. If they say that it's median growth, yes, it's it's spot on. But it might not be capital growth. So you can have massive median growth and zero capital growth or negative. But what you do want to have though is that is a population growth at a society level or a city level, but then no supply growth in your area, and that appeal to a certain subset of that population growth. So you know. If Sydney's population goes from 5 to 10 million, that's 10 million more people buying things, running businesses, and part of that there'll be more people who are subset that are doing well financially and that's potentially up 50% than what it was before or it's doubled. But they're all wanting to live in certain areas where they're not building any more houses. And so population growth is needed because there's no sort of population growth and no – you would still get population growth through, you know, just families, kids who are, you know, zero today – in 25 years' time, they want to buy a house. So you still get that demographic growth. But you do need population growth to support longer-term demand for, for property. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing that I do when I'm looking for, well, avoiding those sort of the, the risks of those growth corridors, uh, and this is really easy for investors to do, you just jump on uh, Google Maps, switch to satellite view and, and look for vacant blocks of land. If you buy a house in a built-up area, then there's very li- little risk of, of oversupply. It's those fringe suburbs or if you buy units, units can pop up anywhere. There, There's always a risk of oversupply at some point in the future. Even if you go to the council website and you, you can categorically state there are no development applications lodged with council, so oversupply is an issue. And then next month, there's a there's a development application sitting with council and within a few years there's there's oversupply but if you can see from a satellite view this is just houses they're all built up there's there's no vacant land there's no greenfield estates and it's a house that you buy then you have effectively avoided that risk of oversupply and that's a really easy piece of research uh, that investors can do so we've got population growth at a suburb level is dangerous because of supply growth. You said wage growth is a bit of a hard indicator to sort of measure. You've got to be careful with the ones who are actually at the auction. So what are some of the other things that you find investors, you know, chase, go up the wrong road? Um, new properties, this will this will antagonise a lot of developers, unfortunately, uh, and those that get paid commissions from developers. Uh, new properties have been uh, shown to underperform older properties and it's because of the depreciation. I mean, 
it's amazing that that in the industry there can be a term called depreciation benefits. There's nothing <laughs> beneficial about depreciation. Losing money. <laughs> yeah, it, what we're after is appreciation, the complete opposite of depreciation. So, I think that investors get really mucked up. They they read the glossy brochures from developers. They should definitely steer clear of new. If you've if you claim in depreciation in a year, and let's say you're on a 40 cents in the dollar marginal tax rate, then you're going to pay $4,000 less tax, but you're not better off by $4,000. You're actually worse off by $6,000. So you've actually incurred a $10,000 loss, but after tax, it's only as bad as a $6,000 loss. But investors are looking at that and thinking, no, I'm I'm getting four thousand dollars, but you're not. You you're actually worse off by six thousand. So, yeah, my advice to investors is steer clear of new. Uh, they have been shown to to underperform, but eventually, new properties become old and they start to perform in the same way as as older properties do. Now, have you done research on how long that takes? Because you, I mean, you already talked about your capital growth timeframe really is sort of one, two, three years. You know, we're talking decades really before that happens, yeah. particularly when you've got new subdivisions after new subdivisions and, and endless land supply. Yeah, although the, the, the data that I'm looking at is, is to try and identify property markets that will have good short-term capital growth. I have done a, a significant amount of research on, on long-term. And unfortunately, because I was saying before that we're in the data age now, long-term, the only data I've got to look at is, is fairly limited. And there's really only three things that I've come up with for uh, outperforming the national average over the long-term. One of these is don't buy new. <laughs> uh, and that is an examination of new properties, how they have resold, how much capital growth they've had. And again, there's limited data available for that. The other thing, as I mentioned, was you buy a house, not a unit, because houses have outperformed units by about 0.9% per annum over the last 30 years. And the other thing is to avoid vacant land where there can be additional supply. And that's really all there is to it. In fact, when people ask me, Jeremy, I don't have the access to the database that you have. What sort of research can I do as a, as a novice? I think the best bang for buck you can get, the easiest research you can do is ask yourself, is this property I'm thinking of buying new? I mean, it's so easy to see. You just look <laughs> at it. Uh, and there you go. That's, that's going to give you a great start in property investing if you simply avoid buying anything new. But I mean, is that enough? I mean, if if that's your sort of goal that you're aiming for, don't buy something new. Buy buy a house and don't buy in an area where they're building lots of houses. Like, surely we can go deeper than that. I mean, <laughs> sure we can go to areas that have great lifestyle benefits or great schools or have you know very limited sort of uh, development of you know apartments, mm-hmm. which could be you know you could have better streets versus other streets. Can't we go a lot deeper than that? Right, yeah. Great question. And and the problem with something like lifestyle is it's it's subjective. So I can't look at a database and plug in some numbers and see how that would go. So that's not saying that it would be irrelevant. It just means that I can't do any research on it to see whether it is a long-term indicator. But can't the bot do that? Well, there, there just wasn't a lot of information 30 years ago in order to, to assess that. Could you just live in the city? Like go like in Melbourne, you would say, well, where's the best place to live in Melbourne? Well, it's going to be, you know, around the east because or around the bayside because you can get access to water, you've got parklands, you've got easy access to the city. And you could pretty much do that in any city, like just through the livability of 
knowing where's a great place to live. Like- well, there was some research that I did uh, a couple of years ago on uh, proximity to amenities. So you're close to good schools or transport hubs like train stations and beaches. Uh, beaches are great lifestyle attractions. Yeah, so it was schools, beaches, train stations, shopping centres and airports. Airports can be quite a, a negative, but it's the same sort of concept. And I was looking at this outperformance over the long term. So I examined all the train stations in Sydney that have been there for something like 50 years, at least 50 years, and compared the growth of those suburbs with suburbs that don't have a train station. And over that uh, 30-year period, there was no difference. And I did the same with beaches and the same with uh, good schools, particularly in Melbourne. And time and time again, there was there was no difference. And I suspect the reason why is because let's say you've got a draw card to a suburb like a, a beach. Well, how long has that beach been there for? Because there's a very good chance that the benefit of that amenity is already well and truly factored into the price of properties. And Queensland University of Technology did this, this excellent study on the uh, expansion of Brisbane Airport to to go international back in the mid-80s. They wanted to see how did the new flight path negatively impact the capital growth of property markets under that flight path. And they found that over the four-year period from the start of that uh, new flight path, there was reduced capital growth in those suburbs, understandably because of the aircraft noise. But then after that, from then on, capital growth was business as usual, just like the rest of the city. So it took four years for a negative amenity to adjust prices, but from then on, it was business as usual. And this is the same with train stations, beaches, schools, all of these sorts of amenities. If they have been there for a long period of time, it's unlikely that they will affect capital growth because it's already factored into the prices. If it's a new amenity, however, then that might impact capital growth. I haven't done research on that. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Okay, so I've got two questions here. So the first in compounding, right? If you're starting off with a, a larger value property and the growth rate is the same, you're going to do better, right, over time than if you buy something cheaper with the same growth rate, right, because the benefit of compounding. So if it's already priced in then and growth is somewhat the same, then that's still a good investment decision, but you're talking short term, right? So therefore, does your research sort of highlight those areas that are about to be negatively impacted by, say, a big infrastructure project that you know that after four or five years or whatever is going to come out in the wash? And so buying when it's sort of underperforming effectively, it's like value investing, you know, it's like it's under undervalued, that's the time to buy and then you, you, you take some of the upswing and sell. Is that some of the things that you're talking about doing? That's that's a, a separate topic. I mean, the research that I did was over the long term, long term proximity to trains, 
uh, train stations, shops and so on, how do they impact things? But just on that thing about the compounding, if you buy a, a million-dollar property in one suburb and it has 6% per annum growth over the next 10 years, that's exactly the same as having two $500,000 properties that have exactly the same growth rate. But it's not the same as buying a million-dollar property in a different suburb with only a 5% annual growth rate. That's right, yeah. So over the long term, I was trying to see, is there a benefit in buying in these better suburbs, suburbs that have more amenities like train stations, shops and schools? And there wasn't anything that showed up in the data over the long term that they'd outperform. Sorry, I'm, I'm just curious on this because if, say, you had 500000 you know, and you, you couldn't afford a million-dollar property, one of those properties that's going to go up 6% per annum, and you had your 500000 are there really suburbs that you can go and spend $100,000 in and get the same growth rate because of the actual lesser, you know, the values, as you said, it's built into the price already. Are there areas where it's not built into the price where you can actually get that same growth? Yes, but for it not to be built into the, the, the price already, you would have to assume that it is a, a new amenity. So it takes time for people to realise, oh, there's a bridge over the river now. I can get to the other side. Why don't I, I live on the other side? It takes time for home buyers to realise that sort of thing. So there can be infrastructure projects that, that affect capital growth in, in suburbs. But after a while, it's going to become factored into the price of properties and then the capital growth will just revert back to the the mean, the normal. But if that amenity, though, becomes more desirable, as in more people want it and there's only limited amount of supply, then that potentially hasn't been factored into prices. That's right, yeah. Over time, more and more people want it. So say there's five chairs and now 10 people want those five chairs. Yeah. Well, those five chairs get priced on the five people who've got the most money. And so even if something's factored into prices today, it doesn't mean it's always going to be factored in at the same degree. Because That's right. If the means of a population grow and there's limited supply, then things could keep on getting more expensive. And so, for example, things can change. Demographics, lifestyle preferences can change. You look at, say, regional areas, you say the beaches, you know, Central Coast or Wollongong, work from home. That wasn't factored in, but now mm-hmm. it is factored in. That's right, yeah. So, so what we're talking about then is you are trying to forecast people's perception of a particular amenity in the future. Mm. So, and, and that's relevant. That's relevant for picking a, a good location. But in the past, all we could do was look at this is the amenity, how have suburbs performed based on, on having that amenity. So it, it, it's a little bit of crystal ball gazing to say, I believe the beaches are going to become more popular in the future or proximity to CBD is considered beneficial. So that's why properties are are more expensive closer to CBD. But have people valued being close to the CBD the same 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago as right now? Will they still value it the same degree in the future? So Mm. it's not a case of I am close to CBD, therefore I'm going to have better capital growth. I have a beach, therefore I'm going to – you've got to somehow forecast how perceptions of those amenities will change in the future in order to benefit from them. So if population growth not the lead indicator, if, (laughs) um, you know, if all the things, you know, wages aren't the lead indicator, if you can't predict – lifestyle because basically you're taking a view on what the future demand is going to be and also there isn't enough rich data going back far enough to be able to sort of look at past patterns. What are you using? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, great question, Veronica. Um, 
it all comes down to supply and demand. So that's the, o- the only two things that affect price change is, is supply and demand. Now, rather than try and forecast what demand is going to be in the future or what supply is, I'm trying to identify markets in which demand currently exceeds supply because that's an imbalance. So property markets are, are much like homeostatic organisms, like our, our skin sweats when we're hot to try and release heat and bring us back to a, a constant temperature or it'll, we'll get goosebumps and it'll thicken to protect us from the cold. So property markets are in this continual tug of war between supply and demand, trying to maintain balance. And the vast <laughs> majority of property markets around the country are, are in a state of, of relative balance. As investors, we want to find markets that are out of balance where demand is, is absolutely clobbering supply. And the way in which the market rebalances is prices in those suburbs go up. They go up too far and that subdues demand and balance is restored to the cosmos. So what I'm trying to identify is markets in which demand exceeds supply. And I know that's only going to be short term. I can't pick anything over the long term because there's no historical data other than don't buy units, don't buy new and avoid vacant land. But over the short term, I'm just trying to measure things like auction clearance rates, vacancy rates, percentage of stock on market, how many open inspections, are auctions going real crazy? That sort of thing is only going to give me an angle, an edge over the short term. And over the long term, the only other three things I can fall back on is houses rather than units and and nothing new and away from vacant land. So can you give us an example of a suburb or something that you you would think an investor should look at now, and I'll pick a budget. Let's say we go 500 or whatever. What budget would you prefer to use? I mean, can you give us an example? We can just talk through like how this would actually work for someone. Um, well, for, for a price of 500,000, you, you're limited probably to um, right now uh, some suburbs uh, to the north of Brisbane. Oh, there's, there's also some elsewhere around Brisbane, but I think Adelaide would give you the most options, especially if you needed some sort of margin for error there. Not everywhere in Adelaide, but there are loads of suburbs where demand exceeds supply. And by that, I mean auction clearance rates are very high, selling times are, are very fast. There's very little discounting. So a, a vendor would, would uh, perhaps not need to be negotiable in order to get a sale. You've got uh, very little stock on market. Vacancy rates are chronically low. A lot more properties are being sold by auction rather than private treaty because there's so much demand. There may be a large percentage of open inspections rather than, hey, book an appointment if you're interested. So there's about 17 metrics that I look at to try and gauge demand and supply for a property market. And those are sort of bundled up into that demand and supply ratio that you you mentioned in my bio, Veronica. So investors can use that as a gauge to see, hey, is there something going on? It doesn't tell you what's going on in that suburb. It's just saying demand is exceeding supply. And so what's the strategy there? So let's say we go buy this place in Adelaide. It ticks all the metrics at 500,000. What would you consider to be an adequate growth rate or oversight? And what period are you aiming for? Are you aiming for three years or five years? or And, and how do you decide to sell? Right. Uh, well, deciding to sell is, is looking again at that demand to supply ratio because if it has come back to a balance point where demand and supply are, uh, are equal, then you wouldn't expect much in the way of capital growth from then on. And then you would be looking at other suburbs 
around the country, anywhere else that you could move your money to. If you sold, you figure out what, what's your sale proceeds. That's the deposit stamp duty to buy an alternative, a replacement. And then you've got to somehow forecast what the capital growth is going to be in the alternative. And if that capital growth would greatly exceed the market that you're currently uh, invested in by a larger amount than the cost to transact, then then there'd be an argument to sell and buy elsewhere. But even if you just hold, so long as you enter the market, get some good capital growth up early, then you've got equity to, to, to buy a second property, assuming that you can service a, an additional mortgage. So what, what sort of growth rate are you wanting though? Like whatever, what period? Uh, well, right now, I don't think it's too hard to find double digit growth uh, around the country because we've got such low interest rates and we're in the middle of a boom. But uh, I, I believe that Almost any time in the last 30 years has been a good time for a property investor to buy somewhere in Australia. And it's, it's about finding those locations. I think that if investors are getting anywhere close to double digit, that's, that's pretty good to hang on to that for say three years. There you go. You've got your, your equity for a, a second property. And so that really helps your. So let's rewind that. So let's say 10% double digit over three years. Let's say. 30% over three years. Now, there might be a compounding benefit yeah, 30, there, but let's just say 30. If we minus off 10% for transaction costs, now we're down to 20%. Then we minus off 25% for, for capital gains tax. Well, let's do 20. So that's another 4%. So now we're down to a 16% amount on your money potentially if it grows 30%, you know, because of, of costs. Uh, and yeah, well, if there is a, I've done these sort of calculations before, and if there is a difference of around about twelve percent or more in the the capital growth over that period of time, say three years, then there is an argument for for selling and buying elsewhere. It really comes down to how long have you held that property for prior to coming up to that decision to sell. Because if there has been a 20-year holding period and you are paying a phenomenal amount in capital gains tax, then then that would be a trigger to, well, no, just, just keep holding that one. Don't worry about that. But if you've only owned it for, say, three years and you've got your, say, 33% capital growth, you're not paying a huge amount in CGT. So first of all, you've got your 50% CGT discount, so you're down to 16.5%. Then there's your marginal tax rate applied to that and the actual, uh, out of that 33%, you might only be paying 6 or 7% in CGT. What's the end game though? Well, I guess it's financial independence. It comes up to, you know, it's dependent on every investor. That's what you mean for the individual, isn't it, Veronica, the, the end well, game? Well, yeah, because there's, what we haven't been talking about is risk, risk that the next one you buy doesn't do that well, um, risk that the market actually isn't very nice to you and actually sits on its haunches for another 10, 15 years. You know, as people yeah. who might have invested in Perth, you'd be you know, ruining the fact, yes, sure, they should have sold, but at some point they bought with hopes, you know, and they probably bought with data and all sorts of reasons why investors buy in areas that they don't know. And also, I mean, the very fact that you've got to pay tax and that means you that money isn't actually then invested and growing for you if you've got a good asset. And I guess the other question I've got for you is, does it matter what they buy? Uh, you mean the, the type of asset? Yeah, you know, like as long as it's not new and, and as long as it's not near vacant land and as long as it's not an apartment, does it actually matter what they buy? I, th- I think it probably does, but it's very hard to, to measure by how much, especially over the long term. But but this whole approach about trading property, uh, it, it's it's not for the faint heart and you would no. need, <laughs> need a lot of uh, experience in interpreting the data. But if you try and time entry 
into a property market and things didn't work out as planned, then you can always just fall back on the long-term hold. It's it's really the decision to sell. And if you've been sitting on a property for five years and it just hasn't moved, it's a little bit easier to, to make that decision. It might be harder if you've seen excellent capital growth and you're wondering, well, is this really going to, to trail off? Is, is there going to be a flat period? Can I capitalise elsewhere? If you got it right the first time, you'd have more confidence in, in selling and buying elsewhere just by using the, the same approach. But if you, if you got it wrong the first time, you can always fall back on the long-term hold. Well, yeah, assuming that you've bought a decent asset, that's the problem. Though we're not actually talking about asset quality here. We're just talking about location choice. But the seven that you bought unseen, I'm curious, do you still own them? No, I've, I've sold all of those. You traded all of them. And what metrics did you use to choose a property without seeing it? And were there any things, I guess, you know, things that you would do differently next time? Definitely there'd be things I'd do differently. The metrics that I was looking at back then, uh, and we're going back to um, oh, 2006, uh, there were six properties that I bought and they were in New Zealand actually, wow, uh, okay. all, all houses <laughs> in the same uh, suburb. And I've, I've sold all of those, but there was, there was one in Western Australia that I uh, bought. Actually, I can't remember when that was. I paid a visit to New Zealand and I did look around and I, I went with a real estate agent to look at uh, an enormous number of properties. And I said, I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this. Then when I came back to Australia, they had a very clear idea of what I was looking for. So I was able to buy sight unseen, but I had visited a lot of properties previously to make it clear to the one real estate agent that I wanted to work with, here's what I'm looking for. Uh, so it's a little, uh, perhaps a little misleading that it was entirely <laughs> sight unseen. I did buy properties without ever visiting them, but I visited the location and I visited very similar properties. Yeah. Uh, but the, the one I bought in Western Australia, I, I didn't even go there and that wasn't really a good one. <laughs> Is this the Dumbo you've saved up for us? Uh, I've got heaps of Dumbos. I've got a baker's dozen of Dumbos that are mistakes that I've made in the past. Do you want me to, to go on to Dumbos now? Yeah, give us one. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good time. Yeah. Okay. So, so that one in Western Australia uh, was all about the the financing. I thought I was really clever here because uh, I was able to get a, an eighty percent mortgage from a, a lender. And 20% from the vendor, the person selling the property was going to lend me the other deposit. So all I had to pay was stamp duty and legal fees. And I calculated that that property only had to grow by 4% per annum because of the extreme leveraging, it would be my best performing asset. But it didn't grow by 4%. It went backwards by 14%. I was about to say and, only 4%. Yeah, only 4 yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all I needed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that was that was not one of the uh, the better investments. But those ones in New Ouch. Zealand were, were fantastic. They, they, they were growing by about 1.5% uh, per month uh, for a good, good 18 months or so. Uh, mm. And this lead, leads to one of my other mistakes. Because I was always buy and hold and then just move on to the next, I took my eyes off properties that I already owned and I had no idea what was going on in various markets. And some of those markets tanked and I would end up with negative equity if I've refinanced and then they've gone backwards. And that's never never a good position to be in, especially when the GFC hit. My cash flow was strained and I had to sell properties which had since come down. And so I've learned to keep my eye on 
property markets that I'm exposed to, uh, and and to never believe that I should always hold for the long term, or if I do plan to hold for the long term, set up a significant cash flow buffer uh, so that I can wait out those bad times and not be in a position where I'm forced to sell. So being an active investor, that's what that's all about really, isn't it? As opposed to a passive investor, which is that whole, you know, set and forget, buy and hold is often the case. But then if you are selecting A-grade assets in A-grade locations, you can relax a bit, you know. So if you're actually aiming for short-term capital growth, you definitely can't relax. And I, and I guess, is that what you're saying there? Well, uh, just on those, I, I'm not entirely sure when you say A-grade, everyone has a different idea of what is uh, an A-grade, but CoreLogic uh, rep- they produce this report um, every now and then. It's They call it a decile report. And what they've done is they they might split an entire city up into 10 groups where you've got uh, in the first decile, you've got the real cheapies. And in the 10th decile, you've got the most affluent and most expensive suburbs. And it's interesting to see at different points in, in various growth cycles for that city, you can see affluent areas and how they have performed versus the, the cheaper areas. And historically, the more expensive, affluent, potentially A-grade areas have greater volatility. In the good times, they tear up and in the bad times, they plummet, whereas the cheaper areas are far more stable. And looking over the last, say, 20 years, there have been cases where some of the lowest decile, the cheapest areas, haven't actually had negative capital growth. They've been so stable. They haven't had fantastic positive growth like the the affluent areas, but they haven't had the negative growth. So to suggest that it's more risky buying in those outer areas or cheaper areas, historically, the data suggests the opposite, that you can benefit from buying in these cheaper A-grade areas, but you might actually be better off selling once once their boom has has come to a close you certainly don't want to be in a position where you've got to sell during the bad times because they're the ones that that fall the most yeah we got i think it was one of our very early episodes in the 30s even frank gelber from biz oxford economics and he talked about that and i remember that the he's talked about the volatility of the upper end of the market can triple and then crash and then triple again yeah and volatility is a, is an indicator of risk it certainly is that's how they look at it in the share market yeah absolutely but when i talk about a grade i'm not talking about most expensive you know right. i'm talking about you know areas where where high demand high consistent demand for quality property that regardless of what market's doing. And there are definitely areas that will perform like that. And, you know, they do tend to be expensive areas relative when you're comparing to, you know, lower socioeconomic areas. However, they're not the upper echelon. Right. It's not your your all clues, your point pipers, Mossman's, those. It's not not those sorts of suburbs. But that's fundamentally what you're talking about, though, really is it has to be an active strategy because you're talking about capital growth. But really, I, I, yes, it is growth of the capital capital, but in my mind, I, I think capital growth is a much more of a long-term view when you're buying property rather than trading, you know what I mean? So it's using words, but and the words, I guess, take on different connotations depending on how you're applying them. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I don't encourage any investor to, to trade property because I just don't believe that the technology is sufficient at this stage 
to do that well, to do that easily. But there are cases where I'll have a client come to me and they've bought something that's, you know, an off-the-plan unit and I know that there's going to be more of those units over coming <laughs> years. Uh, things aren't going to improve and they should exit and they will be better off for it. And, and I do the analysis, I try and forecast the capital growth, and even factoring in a significant margin for error, they're actually better off selling. So there are definitely cases to sell, but I would say as a general rule, investors should probably just, just buy and hold. Right. I mean, I guess you, there's definitely, you know, there's a 1.5 million property investors out there, and I would argue that most of those should be looking at their investment properties and saying, is this really the right decision for me long term? Should I sell it? Should I buy something else? Because you're right, Jeremy, a lot of them have bought assets that haven't got the right fundamentals long term and they could do something better with their money, even just paying off their mortgage or putting money into super. But I was confused. I thought that your ultimate view was for other property investors that is to buy, hold for three or four years, make your 30% potentially, lose you know, 10, 15% of that in tax and costs potentially only make 15% at the end of it and then try to buy in another market and make another 15%, which is mm. it's just very difficult to do because you need significant growth at all times. And you may find it in strong markets with a collapse in interest rates and a you know, very positive 20 to 2023 20, maybe, but you know, uh, when there's, say, the GFC or where there's the you know, 9-11 or when there's a credit crisis or you may lose, you know, four or five years where you can't do this trading strategy. And so, yes, it can work at certain points in the cycle, but you then have to minus off the growth you would have got if you just went and bought something and held it over 10 years because you didn't have to trade. Mm, yeah, and I, I think that for most investors that that they would be at significant risk of being worse off if they were to to trade. I think that it's it's more than just an, an advanced strategy. It's something that's probably out of reach of the vast majority of investors, certainly at this stage anyway. And there's, but I I see in the future that it will be quite commonplace, and that might be more than a decade away. But uh, it's to me it seems inevitable, and that's because of the information age and better ability to analyse that data. I think if costs go down, so if stamp duty goes mm. and we move to land tax, if the real estate agent costs go down, if you can potentially do renovations cheaper and you can potentially uh, buy a property, renovate it and sell it with very minimal costs, absolutely, I think trading becomes much more desirable. But in the current situation where you've still got to pay agents, you've still got to pay stamp duty, renovations is definitely not cheap. It's hard to trade and make money because you need you know, 30, 40% growth. That's right, yeah. It's very hard to get that because that type of strong environment, you need all the fundamentals behind you. You need low interest rates. You need super high confidence. You need a real scarcity, people not to be concerned about their jobs. And so that those markets aren't always, you know, it is at the moment, but it wasn't, say, in 2018. And so... It's hard to continue to trade. It's just a certain point in certain cycles. It just, uh, I think, actually ran a stepping stone strategy workshop with Megan on your first home buyer guide the other day, actually. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's when you're using the stepping stone strategy to buy your first property, you know, you're thinking basically I can't afford my dream home first up. So I, whatever I buy now has to get some good growth in it so I can build my equity and then I can actually upgrade, get closer to where I want to be ultimately. And certainly when you're not paying out any tax when you sell the property, that makes this idea of trying to choose a short-term capital growth play much more sensible. You know, it's certainly it's 
you know, that's something I think that they should definitely look to. You've got to look to an area that's going to have potentially a greater upside than other areas, but even then it's risky. You know, you've got to be happy that you're going to live there because you might get stuck, Um, (laughs) you know. But certainly from that point of view, the risks are a little less because A, you're going to live in it and B, you're not going to be paying CGT when you sell. And potentially no stamp duty. So a lot of first-home buyers, you know, there is stamp duty concessions. There might be, you know, I know that is price limits and, you know, there might be changes, but if you don't have to pay stamp duty, you don't have to pay capital gains tax, then your costs are dramatically lower Then you've only got selling costs. And then you've got the rent saving versus the interest cost. So then your cash flow is maybe not much different. And so, yeah, absolutely. For those sort of first-time buyers, potentially then doing nothing and leaving the money in the bank, maybe the stepping stone works. But um, for investors, it's even harder when you sort of take out capital gains. Mm. Interesting stuff, Jeremy. We really appreciate you coming along. And um, I know I've been quizzing you because, of course, there's some many things we agree with you on, obviously the new and the oversupply and everything and some of the other stuff we're sort of quizzing you on. But ultimately you've, you've come out and said basically what we sort of think to be a good way to look at investing property. You've actually said, look, you really should be looking for the long term anyway. <laughs> so sort of an interesting <laughs> interesting uh, circle we've taken here today. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the use of the technology was really just for those people who are probably questioning whether they've bought the right asset to begin with mm. uh, rather than trading. That's that's just for me. I mean, yeah, yeah. I assumed you were asking me. Yeah, I don't advise others. <laughs> I think the sell versus hold is a question that most investors, unfortunately, just take the hold because it's all a bit too confusing. The fear of making that decision wrong. It's the same as shares. We get this anchoring bias and They'll go, oh, what happens if I sell it and I should have kept it? And so what people do is it's like cancelling a subscription to something you never use. You don't cancel it because you think, oh, maybe we'll need it in the future rather than just cutting the cord, making a decision and moving on to something better. And so, so to give a sort of data analysis to that and then provide, you know, real accurate information around future supply, the problems with demand and stock on the market and clearance rates. And the costs. Is super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, going back to our first ever episode, we interviewed behavioural scientist Simon Russell and he talked about loss aversion and I went off and did quite a bit of research on that and wrote an article on it, which I've, I'll include in the show notes because it is about that idea that people will hold and they're sort of fingers in the ears, la, 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 I don't want to know about it. If you don't actually sell it, you're not realising the loss and so you're not then feeling the loss, but the reality is you are experiencing the loss, you just haven't noticed it. Exactly. Yeah, it takes a lot of uh, character, doesn't it, to to say, all right, I got it wrong, where, where to from here? Yeah, especially with property because, you know, at the barbecues, everyone's running around telling you their, their success stories. No one's running around <laughs> telling you how they lost money on property. <laughs> I think the danger, though, is once you've lost money, though, your natural tendency is to want to make that money back. And so what ends up happening is you end up compounding your problem because you end up taking a higher risk strategy to get that money back and then you can potentially even lose more money. And that's a common financial mistake that people make is they're always looking for short-term returns because they always feel like they're trying to play catch-up rather than sort of accepting that the past is the past. Right now, I've got to make a good decision for the next 20 years. I don't want to repeat my mistakes. And whether it's shares or whether it's you know other high-risk investments, you know that, that compounding of, of trying to catch up never yeah. really works because yeah. you can't go back in time. Yeah, I, I pride myself on never making the same mistake more than half a dozen times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did buy half a dozen uh, properties right. in what, one suburb in, in New, New Zealand. Zealand. Did you say one street? But you, but that, if it doesn't sound like it was a mistake, it sounds like you actually did that very well. Oh, that one worked out okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Awesome, Jeremy. Really appreciate your time for coming on. And yeah, we've got all your links in the show notes. Thanks very much for having me on the show, guys. Uh, it's been great. Thanks, Jeremy. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Let's talk a little bit further about some of the things that Jeremy was talking about, you know, commonly understood to add to capital growth in in areas or make an area a desirable area. And I... He talked about um, the research he did on on train stations, for argument's sake, or shopping centres and airports. And and I guess the thing that I would want to add to this conversation and, and to have you thinking about is that you do need to drill down further to say, well, does the suburb have a train station? Has that impacted its capital growth over time? Because the reality is... Think of the North Shore of Sydney, right? It's commonly known amongst real estate agents that it's East Side Walk Station. It's it's a little acronym they use because that side of the suburbs as they run up that North Shore line are more desirable than the other so west side and the other side of the Pacific Highway and buyers will pay a premium to be on you know the, the better in commas side of the tracks. So if you're looking at it, it, the suburb data, then that's all going to be blended into an amalgam of all the suburb data and not going to be specifically pointed at or targeted at the specific areas and points within that suburb that actually do very, very well as a result of having that transport. Same with a big shopping centre, you know, like you don't really want to be in the shadow of the big shopping centre, you know, with all the hassles of parking and traffic, et cetera, et cetera. But if you are, you know, further away from that suburb, you know, but still within walking distance, that may impact on your prop- your uh, your capital growth potentially or the desirability of your property. So it really is about understanding that you know, the, the broad brush statements are on a train line, you know, do those suburbs do better or not? Well, Balmain, for instance, in Sydney's inner west doesn't have a train station, but it is commonly seen to be the most desirable inner west suburb. You know, so it's true that these uh, these generally hold concepts need to be challenged, but I think we also need to drill a lot deeper into the suburb itself before we sort of make calls on whether these things are valuable and contribute to capital growth or not in the long term, particularly when you're trying to aim to get an A-grade asset. Yeah, I think the real challenge is if you can look at the data at a macro level or you plug it in, uh, it's not deep enough when you're looking to buy one asset, one property, one street in one suburb and then hold it for a long period. Fundamentally, you yes, you want a, a certain sort of rules to sort of you know, what not to buy, but then what to buy, that's the real challenge. And that's that local area knowledge, the things that will, people in that area are going to desire more than other things, you know, and that's access to lots of different things. You know, I believe you've got to go super deep rather than sort of super macro. And maybe on those macro numbers, you could say, that you know, those figures don't prove that that works. Well, absolutely, if you look at a micro level and you look at some of the better properties in better suburbs over longer term, that gap, how much more expensive they are than the other property gets bigger and bigger. And so you've just got to be super careful sort of taking a broad view and just buying something on the numbers. I just think that's an extremely dangerous strategy. The other thing too I want want to add is that, you know, the macro data is very important in, in starting that process of really sort of narrowing down where you want to buy, particularly as an investor. But certainly it does come a point where you do need to have developed that sort of really deep local knowledge as we're talking about here. But the location, it's sort of commonly accepted in property circles that does 80% of the heavy lifting, right? It's not enough all by itself because you can buy in a location and lose money. Even in a good location, I've seen people lose money over periods of time and others have made money in the same location. So that begs, you know, what is it that 
somebody who made money did differently and to the person that lost money. And and the obvious thing, people will say, oh, well, they, they must have overpaid. You know, the person that lost money must have overpaid. It's not necessarily the case. It's what they bought. It's the actual property they bought that makes a difference. And that's really where the the cherry on top is. You know, that really is what makes a difference between in your capital growth. It's not the entire suburb because that saying a rising tide lifts all ships, it's not true. There is vast variety of capital growth, you know, and performance from one property to another in the very same suburb. So it really, really does pay to understand those nuances because that's the difference between a successful investment and an unsuccessful one, assuming you've got the location right in the first place. So that that data will help you get to the location, but beyond that, you've got to go deeper. join us for our next episode. We're doing another Q&A. So keep them coming thick and fast, listeners. We'll be covering how to maximise borrowing on a low income, what agents mean when they say expressions of interest, borrowing from overseas and the challenges, extra challenges those borrowers face, the research needed when buying your first investment property, dealing with best and final offers in a hot market and what due diligence do buyers agents do that regular buyers don't do. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember... Don't be a dumbo.